Welcome to the Soulful CXO, where we discuss leadership principles, core values, health, wellness, and resiliency. I'm Dr. Rebecca Wynn, the founder and the host of the show. Do you have a topic or guests you would like to be featured on the show? Would you like to be a sponsor? Please reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at Rebecca at SoulfulCXO.com. Please go to our partner, Cybersecurity Tribe, for weekly show recaps and other resources. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Soulful CXO. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Wynn. We are pleased to have with us today, Kate Fazzini, who is CEO and partner for Blue Line Recoveries, a company devoted to clawing back funds lost to wire fraud. She is well known for being a highly devoted, intuitive, goal-driven, leading cybersecurity risk and privacy expert who takes pride in being able to share her knowledge of the field. She serves as a professor of cybersecurity at Georgetown University and a keynote speaker. Having formerly reported extensively on cybersecurity as a staff member of the Wall Street Journal, where she and I first met, and CNBC, she's the author of the 2019 book, Kingdom of Lies, Unnerving Adventures in the World of Cybercrime. I really enjoy the book. Highly, highly recommend you read it. Prior to her role in academics and media, Kate helped develop effective security processes, create disaster communication plans, and educate experts as a cybersecurity executive at J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and Promontory Financial Group and IBM Company. Kate, great to see you again. Welcome to the show. Absolutely. I'm so happy to be here, Rebecca, and I'm a huge fan. So thank you so much for having me on. We've switched tables this time, I think. So now you'll be asking the questions. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I do need to t- tell the audience, too, that when I first got that call, our administrative system came in and says, hey, Rebecca. Um, Wall Street Journal is on the phone for you. Kate saw an article you just posted about PGP encryption. I thought it was being fished, and I was like, okay, put the call through. Um, and being that we've had a great relationship since then. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry I, I terrified you. That happens to a lot of executives. At least it did. It's totally opposite now that I'm on the vendor side of things. So um, they're just annoyed by me. But in, in any event, yeah, I, that's a great story. Thank you, Rebecca. Your background is always really fascinating because I believe your your first restart in literature, and then you went on to cybersecurity, <laughs> and you went to reporting. Can you go ahead and explain a little bit that that journey? Because I do think it's wonderful for yeah, audience to know about. Um, you know, I I think I have always been um, a little bit unfocused. I guess is the right word. And uh, so I, when I was in college and in, in undergrad, I went to the Ohio State University, and that is where I'm from. I'm from Ohio, and I, I majored in English because I kind of couldn't figure out what else to pick. And I really liked Shakespeare, and I went, you know, and studied abroad and did all this stuff. But at the same time, I worked for this company called Unicom, that was our campus computer store, and was responsible at that time at Ohio State for helping build out the Ohio Supercomputer Center, and the uh, we, we had. At that time, we had one of the first kind of in-house Apple stores. We had, this is during the era of the Apple Cube, which I think is like a, a relic at this point. But I had always been, you know, I liked computers. I had always done a lot of work just kind of on my own doing some programming. When I was very young, and I'm sorry, I'm like I said, I'm a little unfocused. But when I, when I was very young, when I, we 
this was back when we had telecom where if you called somebody who was like in the town over from you, it would be a long distance charge and sometimes a very high long distance charge. This is the era before cell phones. And I helped some of my friends make these black boxes, which way back in the 80s were ways that you could bypass that. And we could call like us, us little girlfriends, you know, wanting to avoid a thousand dollar phone bill at the end of the month. So, you know, necessity is, is the mother of invention. But, you know, fast forward to college, I, I still love getting into the computers. We ended up doing all kinds of events. We would have like video game tournaments and things. And I found this, this real passion for, I love the technology and I love the people. And I found that I, I, I love helping them translate their expertise in technology to the real world. And, and that's where, you know, we were able to develop a, a number of things that were, that were very successful. We had a pilot, a Palm pilot program back again, when these were big, that we, we helped roll out to many of the doctors at the university hospital. So early on before, you know, now everybody has iPads, but it was just those being able, even as a college student, to just talk to doctors about technology in a way that they would understand without, you know, having to get into some really deep technical detail. So it was just something that I loved and really followed me throughout my career. Absolutely. That's always really fascinating. And I know I've always been a really big fan of your career since we met. And then, you know, I did cyberstalk you and read everything that you wrote. Yeah. You and I talked offline that it was okay to bring this up. So I want to let my audience mm-hmm. know that I'm not being sensitive. But you pseudo disappeared about the time when your book came out and you worried people like myself. And part of the thing that we talk about on the show is health, wellness, and resiliency and getting back to who you are as an individual and taking care of yourself. Could you walk us through a little bit of that and how important that is and what you learned about yourself during those years? Yeah, of course. And that was, I had taken a break from CNBC, I think it was August of was it 2019 or 2020? I'm sort of mixing up the years because COVID consolidated a lot of things. But I was actually diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And I I found out that I had multiple sclerosis after I had actually gone to Black Hat. And I was, you know, very gung-ho. And I, I believe that I walked in the summer heat the desert heat down from the hotel where Black Hat was going on to where DEF CON was going on and back. And it was, you know, I, I learned later that heat can be a huge trigger for multiple sclerosis. Mm-hmm. And I ended up having some um, very significant problems with my eye. And, you know, it, it took a couple of weeks. But after I got back to New York and I, you know, I went to New York Presbyterian and had some wonderful doctors there and met some wonderful doctors at the NYU Langone. IMSMP, the International Multiple Sclerosis Practice and the Tisch Research Center. Sorry. <laughs> I feel like I have to mention them, but they have such long names. So it was a very devastating diagnosis at the time. And it took me some time to get used to the idea that, um, you know, the fact that I get exhausted commuting or doing some of these really heavy lifting, staying up late, pulling all nighters was something that I had to get used to. I had to learn how to find something that I was passionate enough about to make it worthwhile. I have two kids. I have a lot invested in their success and raising them and being there for them. 
but I also have a passion for helping people. And so I, I feel like it took a little time, but I think all of those things came together. And I needed, you know, I, I don't think of it as, I, I, I'm sorry that you were worried, but it was actually it wonderfully healing to sometimes get, get away from social media, I think. You know, especially at CNBC, because that had been where I was, it was just constantly inundated. Um, I don't know, if you, if you watch Succession, they've actually filmed all the scenes in the CNBC studio mm-hmm. where I used to work where he comes in and he's like looking at so you can see there's TVs everywhere there's there's no windows you know it's just constant information and on my phone and it, it was it was very nice to take a break and really kind of get back to what I wanted to do and certainly now with what I'm doing now that's that's the case as you did the self reflection not only about what it was going to be holistically for family what it was going to be i'm sure you've had to make some health changes along those lines mm-hmm. How did you deal with, I know one of the things that we get going so much in all the media, and I know one of the things when I had Teresa Payton and we talked about sometimes taking that five seconds, 10 seconds, or five minutes to 10 minutes is really fully deplugging yourself from all media, really to get those breaks. But you were so in it from being on the air so much and all that kind of stuff. Did you find yourself kind of like going through withdrawal syndromes or something like that? Because- like you said, you had TV cameras around there. You were constantly on the air. You were constantly writing things along those lines. And then, you know, I know it didn't fully, but it kind of went pseudo cold turkey. Did you find yourself kind of having withdrawals? And if you did, how did you deal with handling that? I think the only thing I missed now, I, I don't really like in, enjoy being a, a public person very much. And and especially at, at like a mainstream consumer news organization, you, you get hit with a lot of craziness. And that was that was sort of uncomfortable. So I was actually quite comfortable with it. Um, the one thing that I was upset about was that I didn't have somebody doing my hair and makeup anymore. And I would have to like, <laughs> like, like do it myself. And, you know, there's like eyeliner on the side of my face and I'm wearing sweatpants. And it's like I could not keep it together without the wonderful team of professionals at CNBC. But really, that was the only thing I, I felt very comfortable. I also went back to doing some freelance work and some consulting work and really felt much more comfortable in that role. It's actually taken me some time to get back to just having a social media presence and being out there. I like the way that it is now. It's a much better balance. It's not a constant blast, I guess you could say. Did you do like, I know one of the things I've done quite a few times is like a Venn diagram on what's important to me physically, emotionally, spiritually, leadership, kind of business I want to work with, what I don't want to work with. And you're to a point where your career and obviously you started your brand new company out mm-hmm. where, you know, you need to figure out where does was Kate want to be today and going into the future? Did you have some tools you used or is it just through yeah. all your years of experience? How did, how did you figure all that out? I think every year I I, I take the time to kind of I have these like five vectors of my life that I like to break things down into. And it's, you know, family, financial, and I'm spirituality, health. And what's the other one? I guess it's, oh, it's home, home life. Cause I like to do a lot of DIY. So it's, that's usually more of a practical thing. Like do I need to repair the roof this year. And Every, every year I go through that and it's always a little bit different, but there's always, you know, the, these overarching goals of just wanting to be around some very interesting people. So 
you know, one of the things that has, has carried me through my entire career and, and why all of these pieces fit together is because everywhere I've gone, I've had the chance to meet incredible, well-educated, really, really bright, interesting people. You know, the Wall Street Journal and CNBC were just filled to the brim with that stuff. And it was, it was amazing. Um, now I get to work with my business partners now are John Galasso and, and Rob Gianetta. They're former NYPD. They were there for 25 years each. John was on the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Rob does an enormous amount of security work for churches and synagogues in New York City. Really great, really great fraud investigators and just incredibly well-connected people. And we have so much fun. And and it's just, that's the, the main difference, I think, that, you know, interesting people along the way, and then finding that group where you're always engaged and always doing your best work. That's that's kind of where I am now. I'm sorry, that was like a meandering answer. <laughs> no, it is a very thorough answer. You know, one of the things that's always interested me on, on anybody who does cybersecurity and tech and having to be on the air and doing all this research and doing all these publications, how in the world do you synthesize so much information quickly to go ahead and to get it out in a thoughtful manner? That's, I know that's a big challenge because we get hit with stuff and then we're asked, even from executives, we're asked to like paraphrase it very, very quickly. What have you yeah. learned over the years that, that our, our audience could maybe gravitate towards that can help us? Well, there's definitely um, a very unfortunate lack of rest time for most people. And I mean, having been on the journalism side and seeing how really, really good journalists work and how they are able to put together the pieces of the puzzle in a really strong argument, you know, there's a lot of time that you have to spend just thinking. And I have to carve out that kind of time for myself now, because when I work on fraud cases, a lot of times it's difficult to see all of the angles that could possibly lead to a positive resolution. And in many of them, it's something novel. It's somebody that I haven't thought of who I could call who has the answer. Um, But that is locked up somewhere in my head. And it's really not something that you can find on a computer because there's, you know, different steps that are going to have to take place. And you you have to sit down and think about those things. I'm a huge opponent of hustle culture, which is tough when you're doing a startup. So, you know, everybody, I say, I I have my like combos and and big gulp right now. So I probably shouldn't talk because I'm (laughs) like, that's my lunch today. I've fallen into some of those traps, but I hate hustle culture. I hate constant, constant, constant working, you, you can't actually get anything done. And in fact, now, now people can understand that more that chat GPT is here, where I would have spent probably like two hours coming up with a contract, you know, for some kind of unusual engagement that I was with, I could just put in some parameters, and here's the legal contract. And now I, I don't have to, you know, worry, worry so much about those things. The value of your sitting at a computer and typing away, typing away for hours and hours is, is going to go down substantially in the next couple of years. And your ability to be able to sit, think about how to solve complex problems, and then execute on those solutions, that's going to be something that I think is of more value. So, you know, it, it's the worst advice, because I think whenever you tell people you need to rest more. You need to sit and think more. It, a lot of people will say, like, well, I can't because my boss is always breathing down my neck. And 
I have this huge workload or in cybersecurity, I've got, you know, 5,000 alerts coming at me all the time. It is very difficult, but it's something that's essential. And I think it's well worth trying to work it into your life. I speak quite frequently when people ask me, what do I think is the biggest skill cap out there in cybersecurity? And, and I say it's critical thinking and being able to determine what's the so what, what's the enterprise risk relief that's happening, and then what's the cost associated with that. You also do a lot of teaching. Is, is that covered in the cybersecurity courses? Or are you, are you with me where you think that that is a big lacking holistically in the field right now? Oh, I always cover that in my cybersecurity classes. There's a class that I teach at Yeshiva University where it's a cyber warfare class, but it's very debate oriented. And every, every week we'll have a debate about a different topic. And that topic could be anything from is Edward Snowden a patriot or a traitor? And people are forced to take one side or the other against their will. They're, they're selected out of a hat and, you know, they, they have to come in and really understand what that side of the argument thinks. And because there's so many parts of the Edward Snowden case that are relevant in cybersecurity today, insider threat, you know, the the geopolitics between Russia and, and the United States. There's, there's so much going on there. All of the diplomatic fallout from that. And, you know, some other ones are, you know, we talk about Huawei, which, you know, is... Uh, the, the Chinese company that has been the subject of a number of different types of bans in the United States, should they be banned or should they not? And, you know, China's argument is that it's anti-competitive. Um, the U.S. government's argument is that it's, you know, they're a, a tool of the, the Chinese Communist Party. So kind of forcing students to take each side of those, I, I really want them to learn how to, you know, not just see cybersecurity concepts as this technology that's in front of your face and there's there's this kind of attack and there's this kind of adversary but there's a whole body of opinion behind really everything and you know it's especially with the kind of monitoring that we're getting in place now insider threat stuff people being monitored as they're working from home understanding the you know, pros and cons of those things or why people might object to them is, is just essential. You can't do your job as a CISO if you don't know why somebody doesn't want to be monitored and you don't understand the laws behind it and or, or the arguments that have been made against it. No, I did, I did that quite frequently myself, I think part of it's because of the, the, the courses I take also in cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. But one thing, I took Equifax, I took Anthem, I took Capital One, plethora of other ones. And what I do is I look at even the congressional hearings and stuff like that. A lot of people read them like they're great material because they have to be yep. cited. And what it is, is I, you know, wrote like maybe 15 page synopsis of each one. And then what I said is I always put like a bracket on the name and then take the name out and then put your company name in there. And you're like, oh, well, the CAO and this is who we're not talking. And they did not talk to this person. Then this person had to go through this person. And this person was lost a list. Yeah. Could that have been you? <laughs> so I, so that's the one thing I, I don't think that people always look at, you know, we look at a breach, but do you look at what was the, I'll call them the anatomy of the breach and why it got through. It's not only the bad guys getting in, but why did they get in? How did they get in? How long were they a sleeper? Who was supposed <laughs> to be looking where? Who didn't make those communications and looking at it from a holistic perspective on like, are, could that have been us? And if it, if, if there's an area that could be us, how do we share that up? Do, do you 
see that that's missing as well too. I see that coming oh, yeah. back a lot. I mean, look at the, the you know the CEO of Equifax when he testified before Congress blamed somebody who I think was like a an engineer um, uh, a, or a security engineer. I can't remember what his title was off off the cuff, but he was in one of the lines of business, one of the many lines of business. You know, somebody who was I mean. I don't know how many layers he was below the CEO, but, you know, they didn't have a direct line of communication to one another, but he he blamed this person. And it, it was like, this CEO actually doesn't understand the problem. You know, it, it, I can't imagine how many times he's been brought, you know, a, a budget proposal that that was rejected. I And I think, you know, you see these these same themes come up time and again. I think Capital One is a great example of just a really interesting breach that I I think was in the realm of just not preventable. Because today, if you look at what we have as far as cloud security tools and the ability to close out every single bucket that, that these engineers are working in, on tons of different projects, many of them are projects that are going to make the business money. So there's not like a lot of security involved up front. And it's it's one individual who had malicious intent, who had passwords, who had probably been trustworthy up to that point. It's something that I think everybody really has to understand that uh, even there are limits to communication. So I I actually teach the Equifax breach in in one of my classes at Georgetown as a tabletop. And it's it's a fictional Equifax-like scenario, but I am planning on changing it out to that Capital One breach because I think that's where these lone wolves, you know, some of these are going to be completely unpreventable. And that's where a lot of these attacks will come from in the future. And, you know, I think (laughs) for for CEOs and people who will be speaking about these at a high level, they really need to understand the psychology behind why, why these events take place. The technology, it's, it eventually you know, we'll trail off and there there will be some things that will never be able to be covered, especially yeah. when it comes to insider threat. One of the ones I like to do too is I like to take the Anthem one, especially when I'm dealing with financial people because they're like, oh, you know, it's just a phishing a big deal. And they're like, well, it, could you stomach this much? And then I'm like, not editing on reputation, the credit reporting, what they change for the infrastructure. What I do is every slide it adds on the cost. You're like, oh my, you know, last time I looked at it, it was like 650 million. But initially, if you want to look at the initial reports, ah, uh, you know, I was a million, two million, whatever. So it's the ongoing residual costs. And then I always take a look too about, and did it happen again after you paid all that money? <laughs> do you do that when you teach as well too? I like to do yeah. that with my teams. It's it's the residual reintroducing of something that should have been handled before, right? It's the yeah. reinduction rate is the, is the key metric, the KPI there. Absolutely. And I think so, you know, one of the things that is very difficult for CISOs to quantify is, well, it is difficult for them to quantify how much these breaches cost. It's something they get asked all the time. It's something that uh, there are there are plenty of companies that put out money or money, I'm sorry, that put out studies about how much money is lost in cyber attacks every year, how much is lost to ransomware, but we don't really have a, a really great grasp of the problem. And so... I'll talk a little bit about the company that we've just started, which is devoted only to clawing back the money that has been lost to wire fraud, specifically business email compromise. You know, over the past couple of years, the FBI has has developed a really 
effective way of clawing back those funds before it's too late. It's called the financial fraud kill chain, and you can look at it as a publicly available service. But a lot of places, they don't, they don't know that yet. And by places, I mean the banks who are advising their clients who have been victims, the, the companies that are victims themselves, they don't, they don't realize that they are susceptible to this because they think that they have phishing email controls in place and they think that they have the right, you know, that, that nobody would be fooled by something like this. Very, very sophisticated people get pulled into these BEC scams all of the time. And it's a real dollar loss. That is actually what I like about it because it's, it's very clearly, if you lost a million dollars to business email compromise, you lost a million dollars. And that's exactly how much you lost, you know? There's not a like downtime calculation. There's not a missed productivity calculation. It, it's very straightforward. And because so many cyber products are focused on, you know, the long-term subscription-based sort of risk assessments and gap assessments and program creation, this is something that sometimes falls through the cracks. And I think a lot of people are surprised when they just they just lose this much money and there's no recourse. And I think there are still a lot of gaps in cybersecurity as well. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of innovation out there. And there are a lot of things, um, you know, some of the more innovative people who are coming up with with technology, especially in AI, will be able to solve. So Again, it was another meandering answer. I think you caught me on, on a too much coffee day. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's actually, it's great because it leads us back actually when we talk about chat GPT and we're not picking solely on that where we're talking about the, the, the open AI type accounts because one of the things is, is, is you used to be able to flag, you know, if it's an SMS message, that doesn't quite sound the same. So maybe you have that belly check. If that email came in, that belly check. If that voice came in, belly check. But they've gotten so well now that the people who, Normally, you could flag a little bit that way. Now they literally can go ahead and they can use a lot of these tools and say, hey, I need yeah. you to write it more similar to how Rebecca writes, or I need you to sound more like that company writes. Are you seeing that as being a strong fear right now that's also going on with the clients that you're that you're speaking with on, on yeah, how and I think, that gap is bridged so quickly? Oh, absolutely. And I think that the, the you know, it, it's just, it's not just text, obviously, there's you know, we have seen some voice, we've seen fake. some even video calls that are fake. And and prior to this, if you, you know, one of the controls to prevent a business email compromise is to just do a, a phone check to call somebody, voice verify. Now, you know, that might not be an option. And, and people have been taught to do that for years. So it's like, we will have to unwind a lot of a lot of habits. But in the meantime, many of these companies will still be susceptible to this. And uh, I mean, the AI stuff is very interesting. I think one of the things that I have always worried about with it is that, you know, recently I plugged in some parameters of a, a story that I was sort of interested in. And I wanted to see what it would come up with. Could it write me a news article about this story that there had not been a news article written about? And it, it did produce a very beautifully written article, but and it was about a court case, so it was about something real, but all of the names in it were fictional, they, they were just made up. And and so I, you know, that's, I, I know that they call that hallucination, and that's been something that they they talked about on 60 Minutes. Not my hallucination, the AIs. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I think that's very interesting, but 
if it's going to be a technology that's used for introducing code into any environment, or it's going to introduce, you know, financials, it, it can be tampered with. I'll go back to journalism a little bit. Most of the big newspapers have gotten rid of copywriters and copy editors. Now it's just reporters and, and you know, top level editors. And that's it. And a lot of reporters are expected to just publish their stories after kind of <laughs> proofreading them themselves, especially at, at some of the, the smaller outlets. And it, it's the same thing with the, the, the AI stuff. You know, it seems that it will be produced and there won't be anybody going back over this to check it out. I think the technologist view would be, well, that's unnecessary. You know, that's just another waste of time. That's what AI is supposed to get rid of. But it, it really worries me that the fact checking might not quite be there. I mean, I imagine it, you know, the, the what if scenario that we were we were worried about at Chase like 10 years ago was what if a hacker got in and changed something on the balance sheet? Well, what if, you know, AI has introduced this process and either it's incorrect or a hacker gets in and, and changes something, but then it spins into something even bigger. You know, that's where you could have a, a major financial impact. And I, yeah, it's it's a very worrisome thing. <laughs> I, I'm i not as worried about the, the job loss, which I think is inevitable as technology progresses, as I am about some of the cyber warfare capabilities <laughs> around that stuff. I just want to remind our audience that business continuity under the business cyber liability insurances, there's AI writers coming on in renewal. So make sure you take a look oh, at yeah. that and intellectual property and how that may be negatively affected and not being covered. With that, we're running out of time. So what is the best way for people to get a hold of you personally to be a keynote speaker or to go ahead and to engage the services of your company? Yeah. I you can email me at Kate. The company is called Blue Line Recoveries. I'm sorry. I'm really bad at the marketing piece, but I think I should have said that up front or something. Blue Line Recoveries is what it's called. You can email me at kate at bluelinerecoveries.com. And I, you can always find me on LinkedIn is the only social media I use, um, and, you know, especially with what the, all the information Facebook collects. But yeah, I, I, I love talking to people. I love hearing about any kind of financial fraud. If there's any way that I can help, please give me a call. I, I love to help people out. Hey, thank you so much. You are a soulful CXO. Oh, thank you. That's great. I am a CXO now. Wonderful. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. You're great. Keep it up. 